Nicholas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 2, Episode 12, 1911-12 vs England, Rumble in the Selection Jungle. Following two successive Ashes losses, the English were desperate to regain the trophy. After Charles Fry rejected the offer to lead the tour, the MCC turned to the man who had last won the Ashes in Australia, Pelham Plum Warner. The side he led was a mixture of experience and debutants. Familiar tourists Rhodes, Barnes, Hobbs and Gunn were selected, whilst Woolley had played against the Australians in the 1909 series. Other than Warner, there were only two other amateur players selected, right-arm all-rounder Johnny Douglas and left-armer Frank Foster. The rest of the squad was made up of professionals. Left-handed batters Phil Mead and Septimus Kinnear, right-arm medium all-rounder Jimmy Ironmonger, fast bowler Bill Hitch, leg-break bowlers Jack Hearn and Joe Vine, and wicket-keepers Bert Strudwick and Edward Tigersmith. The English departed to face a side that was riven with disputes between players and their board. The leaders of the Australian Board of Control, Billy McElhone from New South Wales and Ernie Bean from Victoria, had once again tried to relitigate issues from the 1909 tour, demanding Frank Laver hand over his books and trying to smear the reputation of former Australian captain Monty Noble. By doing so, they hoped to turn public support away from the players so as to give the board much more leverage to be able to control all aspects of cricket in Australia. This was further demonstrated when it came time to determine the Australian selectors for the upcoming season. Three men were to be chosen, one from each of the Shield states. Australian captain Clem Hill was easily chosen by the South Australian board as their representative. However, McElhern and Bean both conspired to get their own men chosen. Hugh Trumbull, who had taken over from Ben Wardle as president of the Melbourne Cricket Club, was expected to get the position assigned to Victoria, but Bean rallied his supporters on the board to elect Peter McAllister, who the players distrusted due to his close relations with board members. Meanwhile, Victor Trumper was nominated as a New South Wales representative, but only received four of 11 votes, with former Test batsman Frank Iredale taking the position. With Hills and McAllister's relationship already strained, selection meetings soon became heated, with barbs being traded with regularity. Meanwhile, the English arrived in Australia in November of 1911. Their first match came against South Australia in Adelaide. The English started on a strong note, winning by innings in 194 runs. Gunn, Warner and Foster all scored centuries before strong bowling performances from Barnes, Douglas and Foster saw the English coast to an easy victory. However, soon after the match, an ulcer in the small intestine that Warner had been managing flared up so badly that he would be unable to play any further part in the tour. As England always appointed amateur players as captain, they left only Douglas or Foster to lead the side. The team decided to go with Douglas, the 29-year-old Essex captain. Like Foster, Douglas was yet to make his test debut, but had already been an international sporting success, winning the gold medal in the middleweight boxing in the 1908 London Olympics, beating Australian hero Snowy Baker. Douglas's initials of JWHT had led to him being called Johnny Will Hit Today, although Australian barrackers would turn that into Johnny Won't Hit Today when they began to complain about his slow batting. The English, under their new captain, followed up their win against South Australia with a 49-run victory against Victoria, with Foster scoring another century, whilst Douglas took eight wickets for the match. A rain-affected draw against New South Wales followed before a comfortable seven-wicket victory against Queensland. Their final game before the first test was against an Australian eleven, led by Victor Trumper, with test cricketers Hardigan, Calloway, Armstrong, and former English international Jack Crawford in the side. The three-day match was drawn, with Douglas scoring a painstaking five-hour century before Crawford responded with a run-a-minute ton of his own. The first test was to take place at the SCG beginning in mid-December. The Australians would only make one change to their lineup from their last test earlier in the year against the South Africans. Despite McCartney's outstanding performance in that match, he had started the season poorly for New South Wales, failing to get out of single figures in the three innings he played against South Australia and the English. Because of this, his place went to a debutant, Roy Minnett. 
The 25-year-old had scored a half-century against the English for New South Wales and featured in the Australian eleven, where he accomplished the same feat. For the English, Ironmonger, Hitch and Vine were left out, while Strudwick was chosen ahead of Smith as keeper. This meant the English side had five debutants, with Kinnear, Mead, Hearn, Foster and Captain Douglas all appearing in tests for the first time. The test was to take place two days following the death of the former Australian batsman Reg Duff at the age of 33 from alcohol addiction, with both sides wearing black armbands to pay their respects. On an ideal day for cricket, Hill won the toss and chose to bat. Bardsley and Callaway opened for the Australians, whilst Douglas commenced with himself and Foster, with many surprised that the more experienced Barnes wasn't given the new ball. Runs came in singles to start with, with Bardsley doing most of the scoring. After 20 minutes, Barnes was introduced, but Bardsley struck him for the first boundary of the day. A late glance off Foster brought Bardsley a second four, and soon he'd reached 30. However, Douglas brought himself back on and struck, sending an outswinger down that Bardsley could only nick behind to the keeper. He was replaced by Hill and won for 44, who started with a straight-driven boundary. Callaway found his first boundary off Barnes and brought up the 50. The score was raised into the 70s before Douglas turned to the spin of Hearn and Woolley. The latter was immediately successful, catching Callaway off his own bowling for 20. This dismissal saw lunch taken, with Hill 20 not out, the Australians on two for 77. Following lunch, Armstrong joined his captain, cutting the first ball he faced for four. Hill struck a boundary off Hearn in the next over. Run slowed quickly, with 100 coming up after only 10 minutes after lunch before Hill took 14 off a Foster over. Just as the Australians were getting on top, Hill attempted a run, but turned back and was run out by a sharp throw from Rhodes, having made 46 with six boundaries. He was replaced by Trumper, coming to the crease at three for 121. He started with a boundary off a Kinnear misfield, whilst Armstrong was lucky to survive a caught and bold chance, followed by a strong LBW appeal. Another cut for four by Trumper saw the 150 raised, whilst Armstrong found Woolley's slow left armers to his liking with two cover-driven boundaries and an over. Two more cover drives allowed Armstrong to bring up his half-century. However, on the stroke of T, he played forward to a ball from Hearn and missed, with Strudwick catching him out of his ground. Armstrong was dismissed for 60, with seven boundaries, with the Australians going to the break at four for 198. Trumper, who was on 27, was joined at the crease by Ransford. The new batsman was nearly York first ball and struggled for a while. However, Trumper was looking comfortable, cutting Woolley for four to bring up the 200. Another boundary off Foster brought up his half-century, whilst Ransford got in on the act by glancing Douglas to the leg boundary. Trumper luckily survived when a leading edge fell just short of point, responding with a further two boundaries off Douglas. Rhodes was introduced for the first time as the score passed 250 and slowed the run getting. The tightness of the bowling eventually got to Ransford, who cut a ball from Hearn to deep point, where Barnes took the catch. He departed for 26, having put on 80 with Trumper. The debutant minute came to the crease at 5 for 278 and was warmly received by his home fans. He celebrated his debut by cracking the first ball from Barnes to the boundary. At the other end, Trumper's run scoring was slower than earlier, working his way into the 90s with ones and twos. The 300 was raised as the two looked to get through the stumps, managing to reach the end of the day without further loss. Minute had started brightly with 22, whilst Trumper was 95 not out as the Australians reached 5 for 317. An enormous 40,000 strong crowd attended day two, in anticipation of Trumper bringing up his century. It was Minute that brought the crowd alight early though, with a boundary in Foster's first over of the day, followed by three in the left arm's next over. Barnes at the other end was keeping Trumper quiet and took an edge through the slips off Foster for four to bring up his 100, his eighth overall and sixth against England, both records. Minute brought up his own half century made it better than a run a minute, although he was nearly immediately out, with Douglas dropping a simple chance off Woolley. Minute continued to hit boundaries and brought up the 100 partnership. Eventually, Trumper swung hard at Woolley, but could only manage the top edge that was caught by Hobbs at cover. His 113 had taken almost four hours and included 12 boundaries, having shared a 109 run partnership with Minute. Horton joined the set batsman with the score on a 387. 
Mina continued on, driving Wooly twice to the boundary and over, with another in the next bringing up the 400. Shortly afterwards though, Minute, having reached 90, edged Barnes to foster at slip, who completed the catch. He'd made a sparkling debut, hitting 14 fours in his total. New batsman Cotter was nearly run out first ball, but a wild return from Douglas added four to his total. However, right on lunch, he bunted the ball back to Barnes and was out for six. Horden was 17 not out as the Australians went to the break at 8 for 426. Following tea, a further 21 runs were added for the ninth wicket before Douglas struck twice in two balls, ending the Australian innings on 447. Horden was not out, but hadn't added to his tea total. The wickets were spread for the English with Barnes claiming three, whilst Douglas and Woolley both finished with two. Hobbs and debutant Kinnear are open for the English, with the first over off Cotter bringing eight runs and a couple of half chances. Hobbs was living dangerously, thrice playing balls through the slips off Cotter for four. Kinnear found Witty to his liking, driving him twice to the boundary in an over. Auden was brought on and struck Hobbs on the pad, but the LBW peel was rejected, with the ball having just pitched outside leg stump. Auden's introduction slowed the scoring, allowing Callaway to come on and bowl Kinnear for 22. Gunn replaced him and safely escorted England through to T at 1 for 51. Armstrong was brought on after the break, but it was Cotter that got the breakthrough, with Gunn edging a ball onto his wicket to be out for four. Rose was a new man and started positively, off driving a boundary first ball. Hill made frequent bowling changes, but the two batsmen handled the challenges comfortably. The reintroduction of Horton caused some difficulties, but all appeals were rejected by the umpire. The English hunter was brought up with Rhodes moving into the 40s. However, at this point, he jumped out to Horton only to miss the wrong one and was stumped, having made 41. He was replaced by a Mead. Hobbs brought up his 50, having passed a 1,000 test runs during the Englings, with four overthrows as Callaway missed a run-out chance. Mead was then dropped twice without scoring, by Hill and Horton, but departed for a duck when Horton held on to another return chance. Hearn came in shortly before the end of the day, and the two batsmen saw through to stumps. Hobbs was 63 not out, as the English ended the day on 4 of 142, trailing by 305. Play resumed on Monday following the rest day under cloudless skies. The 15,000 in attendance were rewarded by a fantastic one-handed catch by Hill at mid-on off Witty, dismissing Hobbs for his overnight score in the opening over. Foster then joined Hearn. Hearn was lucky to survive when he edged the ball between second and third slip for four, whilst Foster was then dropped on zero at second slip. Foster took advantage of the life, peppering the offside with boundaries, including taking nine runs off one cotter over. The score raced past 180, with Hearn surviving a close LBW shout off Horden. Foster continued to live dangerously, scoring another boundary with an edge that flew past slip. He brought up his half century at a run a minute with a score moving well into the 200s. Hearn then took two boundaries off Horden, but in the leg spinners next over, he managed to get the inside edge off Foster's bat and bowl in for 56. He'd hit nine boundaries and shared an 89-run partnership with Hearn, taking the score onto six at 231. Newman Woolley raced to double figures with the Australians unable to slow the scoring. The total moved to 265 at the lunch break, with Hearn on 45 and Woolley 28. Hearn brought up his 50 in the first over after lunch off Cotter. The scoring was slower than before lunch, but the batsmen still looked comfortable. Woolley made his way to 39 before Horton returned and deceived the left-hander with a googly, bowling in middle stump. The English captain was next to arrive, but he only lasted one ball when he tamely hit a catch to Trump at mid-on. The English were on 8 for 293, still trailing by 154 runs. Barnes survived the hat-trick ball and helped take the score past 300 before his bowl by Witty. With only one wicket remaining, Hearn hit out, finding the boundary and taking his score to 76 before a mishit was caught by a running trumper off Callaway, ending the English innings on 318. Horton was the star for the Australians, claiming 5 for 85, whilst Callaway finished with three wickets. The Australians took a 129-run lead into their second innings, with Bardsley and Callaway opening. Bardsley brought up a 1,000 runs in tests with his first run, whilst Callaway found an early boundary off the bowling of Foster. 
Bardsley then glanced the four off the same bowler, who was operating with the leg stump line. The score moved to 29 before Foster found a gap between Bardsley's bat and pad to bowl in for 12. He was replaced by Hill. Both batsmen settled comfortably, finding little difficulty as they continued to raise the score. Douglas rotated his bowling options, but regular boundaries helped relieve any pressure that was built. The team 100 was brought up with little fuss as stumps approached. Both batsmen ended the day with inside of half centuries, with Hill on 49 and Callaway 47. The Australian total stood at 1 for 119, meaning they would take a 248 run lead into the fourth day. Both non-out batsmen brought up their 50s in the opening overs of play on day four. Hill went on a run a minute in the morning's play, but then attempted a big hit off Foster and was clean bowled for 65, having hit seven boundaries. He was replaced by Armstrong at 2 for 150. Armstrong began with a strong pull shot for four off Hearn, whilst at the other end Callaway was dropped by Willie at slip off Foster. He took a score under 70 before Douglas brought himself on and bowled him. He batted for three hours and hit nine boundaries in his innings. Local hero Trumper replaced him. He moved quickly into double figures with two boundaries off Hearn, was then caught and bowled by Douglas for 14. Ramsford joined Armstrong, with the two pushing the score on to 210 at lunch. Armstrong didn't last long after the break, bowled by Foster for 28. Half the side was now gone for 218 as Horden joined Ransford. The new batsman was lucky to survive two edges through the slips, with both flying for four past outstretched hands. Ransford was looking more comfortable, striking Barnes to the point, then the square leg boundaries. Horden made his way to 18 before a ball kept low from Foster and bowled him. He was replaced by a minute, who was batting lower down the order due to a leg injury suffered whilst fielding. He found the boundary first ball, taking the score onto 215. The runs dried up for a while as Foster engaged in leg theory, bowling a leg stump with catches spread through the leg side. No fielding restrictions existed regarding fielders behind square leg at this point in cricket history. Barnes employed the opposite tactic, bowling wide outside off to Ransford, who played out four consecutive maidens. The pressure built before Ransford cut a ball to Rhodes at point, who took a juggling catch at the fourth attempt. He departed for 34. He was followed shortly after by a minute, who was clean bowled by Douglas for 17. When Cotter was trapped LEW for two by the same bowler, the Australians had lost three for 15. Coming together with a score at 283, Carter and Witty took the total past 300 before the innings ended with Carter being caught off Foster. The Australians finished on 308, with Foster claiming his maiden test fifer, whilst Douglas took four wickets. The Australians had still set an opposing target of 438 for the English to win the test. Hobbs and Kinnear opened. An early chance went begging when Kinnear was dropped at slip by Armstrong. Hobbs was batting confidently, striking both opening bowlers to the boundary, and was surprised when he edged the ball behind off Cotter, with Carter taking the ball at head height, dismissing him for 22. Gunn came in at three and survived a strong LBW shout first ball. Kinnear had a second life when he was missed by Callaway, or to have been a spectacular catch if it had been completed. Kinnear was then dropped again, this time Horden missing a chance off his own bowling. The two bats were able to make their way to stumps without further loss, taking the total to one for 65, with Kinnear on 27 and Gunn 16. Horton's second over of day five brought about the breakthrough, with Kinnear falling to a diving catch at mid-on by Trump of 30. He was replaced by Meade, who joined Gunn at the wicket. The scoring was very slow, with the batsman taking few risks. It took an hour for the first boundary of the day, with Gunn off-driving Horton. The 100 came up with Meade's first boundary, striking Callaway to long off. The two batsmen remained at the crease at lunch, with Gunn on 41 and Meade 18. Resuming a 2 for 114, Gunn brought up his half-century and the scoring rate improved as Hill rotated his bowlers looking for the breakthrough. It was batsman error though that brought about the wicket, with miscommunication leading to Meade being run out by the Australian captain for 25. Rhodes then joined Gunn, but he was dismissed for a five-ball duck, with Trumper taking another splendid catch off Horden. Seven runs later, Gunn jumped out to Horden, but could only slice the ball to deep point where Witty took the catch. He departed for 62, with English now 5 for 148, still requiring 290 runs for victory.
Debutants Foster and Hearn then combined. Foster played much the same as he had in the first innings, hitting Whitty into the stands before following up next ball with a boundary. However, his cameo ended on 21 when he was caught at deep square leg off Horton, who had now taken 3 for 20 since lunch. Woolley came to the crease, but could only manage 7 before he was caught cutting off Cotter, with Armstrong taking a diving left-handed catch. Douglas joined Hearn with a two-reaching tee with a score at 7 for 186. Following tee, Douglas was nearly run out, but managed to scamper back into his crease. The two batsmen then batted doggedly, with Hearn in particular soaking up a lot of balls. The score went past 200, and the two were able to build a 50-run partnership. The runs required were reduced to under 200, and the pair looked likely to see out the day. However, Horton returned to the bowling crease and managed to bowl Hearn off his legs for 43. After Douglas refused Hill's request to extend the day to finish the match, the play ended with the English at 8 for 263. There were no day 6 miracles for the English, who only survived a further 30 minutes before the final two wickets fell. Both Douglas and Barnes were bowled by Horton, who finished with 7 for 90 to go with his 5 in the first innings, giving him 12 for the match. He carried the Australians bowling, with the others only taking 7 wickets and an average of over 50. That said, the Australians have won a hard-fought match to take a 1-0 lead, heading into the second test of the MCG, starting on the 30th of December. The English would make two changes to their lineup for the test, dropping Strudwick and Kinnear. Smith came in as the wicketkeeper, whilst they strengthened the bowling by bringing in fast bowler Hitch, with both making their test debuts. There were question marks over Bartley's fitness, but he was past fit to play, so the successful Australians were unchanged, with Hill winning the toss and choosing to bat. Foster began with a maiden to Callaway. Barnes then struck with his first ball of the day, bowling Bardsley's off his pads for a golden duck. Hill replaced him, but struggled with the move and that Barnes was generating off a good length. Callaway could only manage two before he was trapped plumb in front by Barnes. Armstrong came in at two for five and had the same difficulties. Hill then was clean bowled by Barnes to four, with a ball that pitched outside the left-hander's leg stump, only to hit the top of off. Trumpet nearly was out for a golden duck when the first ball he faced passed within a whisker of the stumps, before Armstrong was also dismissed, caught behind off Barnes. The Australians were reeling at 4 for 11, with Barnes' figures reading 4 for 1 off 5 overs. The 26,000 strong crowd were in stunned silence as Ramsford joined Trumper. They had a reprieve when light rain forced them from the ground for 10 minutes. Trumper struck two boundaries off Foster upon the resumption, whilst Barnes appealed unsuccessfully for LBW against Ransford. Hitch was brought on for an over before lunch, but the Australians negotiated it safely, going to the break at 4 for 32. After only 10 minutes of play after lunch, Trumper was bowled by Foster for 13. Newman Minute could then only manage two before being caught at cover off Barnes, giving the bowler his fifth wicket. Australia was now in the terrible position of 6-38 as Horden joined Ransford. Horden played defensively as Ransford did most of the scoring, hitting Barnes to the boundary. The total went past 50 as the Australians started to recover. Ransford was looking more comfortable and took his score into the 40s before Hitch was brought back on. The Victorian attempted a cut shot, but could only edge it behind to be out for 43. Cotter came to the crease at 7 for 80. He hit three successive boundaries to square leg in Hitch's next over. However, soon after, he was run out by a strong throw from the boundary, attempting a third run. The Australians now only had two wickets remaining with 97 on the board. However, Carter combined with Horton for a time and held out, slowly building the total. At this point, some of the crowd turned on Barnes, who was being slow and meticulous in setting his field. As the booing intensified, Barnes threw the ball to the ground and crossed his arms. This only accelerated the jeers, before eventually Barnes picked the ball up and continued bowling. Carter looked as comfortable as anyone against the bowling, and managed to score 29 before his caught behind off the bowling of Douglas. The final pair of Horden and Whitty then managed to add another 44 runs before Woolley was brought on and ended the innings with his first ball, bowling Whitty for 14. Horden was left 49 on out. Barnes was the pick of the bowlers, ending with 5 for 44 off 23 overs, although at one stage he had had 5 for 6. 
the Australians have posted a total of 184, a disappointing one given the flat nature of the pitch, and it left the English half an hour of batting time to see out the day. Rhodes opened the batting for the first time, a startling promotion for a cricketer who had began his career as a number 11. He was joined by Hobbs at the crease. Ten runs came in the first two overs before Hobbs edged the ball from Cotter behind to Carter, dismissing him for six. Cotter was said to be his bowling as fast as anyone had seen, a key weapon in the Australian team arsenal for many years. Albert Cotter was born in 1883, the youngest of six children. Most often called Tibby, he made his way up through Sydney grade cricket, playing for Glebe and making his first class debut at the age of 18. At 5 foot 8 or 172 centimetres tall, he generated most of his pace from strong chest and a slinging arm action. With Ernie Jones' form dropping away, the Australian selectors were looking for a fast bowling replacement, with Cotter making his test debut at the age of 20 in 1904 against England. He was then chosen to tour England in 1905, where he struggled early on, but became very effective when he got used to conditions. He became an automatic selection when fit over the next few years, touring England again in 1909. He wasn't always consistent, but when he was on song, he was the bowler the opponents least wanted to face. Following Hobbs' dismissal, Hearn joined Rhodes at the crease. He appeared comfortable with the pace of Cotter, whilst Rhodes struck Whitty to the boundary. The hero of the first test, Horton, was tried just before stumps without success. The English ended the day at 1 for 38, with Rhodes on 16 and Hearn 11, trailing by only 146 runs. The next day was the rest day, which happened to be New Year's Eve. Whilst the players were enjoying their day off, secretly the Australian board met to change their constitution. Previously, they had agreed to allow the players selected for an international tour to have the opportunity to choose their own manager. That night, they broke their promise, rewriting the terms of how tours would be organised so that the board would have a final say on all personnel. This would impact the players' remuneration from tours, as the manager determined how proceeds were distributed, meaning a board appointee would give the players less than what they expected. This was kept from the players for a time, with McAllister believing that he would be appointed as manager for the 1912 tour, allowing him to get one over on the people he thought had disrespected him, including Laver, Noble and Hill. Play resumed after the rest day on New Year's Day. Plum Warner, slowly recovering from his illness, inspected the ground and was warmly received by the crowd. Overnight showers had little effect on the wicket as the two batsmen built on their total. Rhodes lived dangerously, playing many balls through the slips just out of reach of the fielders. The total moved past 50 as Horden was brought on, with Hearn immediately pulling him to the league boundary. Run scoring had been slow, but the introduction of Callaway saw that rate improve, with both batsmen finding him easy to play. Hill rotated his bowlers, giving Armstrong a minute turns at the crease, but no one was able to create any chances. Both batsmen moved into the 40s and took the total past 100. Rhodes reached his half-century just before lunch, whilst Hearn went to the break at 47, with the English total having moved to 1 for 117. Now trailing by only 67 runs, the two batsmen looked to erase the deficit quickly. Rhodes clipped Cotter to fine leg for four, whilst Hearn struck Horton for consecutive boundaries, bringing up his own half-century. Soon after, though, Rhodes attempted another glide through slips off Cotter, only to be caught by Trumper. He made 61 and shared a 127-run stand with Hearn. Gunn replaced him and joined the well-set batsman. Gunn was uncomfortable against Horton and was nearly bowled on a couple of occasions. At the other end, Hearn did most of the scoring, moving into the 80s, or he did survive a rough examination by Cotter. Just as Gunn had reached double figures and looked to be getting settled, he was trapped LBW by Armstrong for 10. Newman Mead scored a single off his first ball, but then struggled to find gaps. Hearn took his score into the 90s and calmly worked his way towards a century, reaching the milestone with a push for two off Armstrong. T was taken soon after the English well in control at 3 for 211, leading by 27 runs. The break brought a change of fortunes for the Australians. Mead was out without having added to his score of 11, caught it slip off Witty. Hearn's innings came to an end soon after, edging Cotter behind to be out for 114, made in almost four hours with 11 boundaries.
At the age of 21, he was the youngest Englishman to score a test century. The English were now 5 for 224. Three runs later, Foster became Cotter's fourth victim when he was caught at mid-off for nine. Douglas and Woolley then combined to stem the flow of wickets. Douglas lived up to the Australian cloud's sledging of him by batting slowly, whilst Woolley was more attacking, although many of his runs came from leading edges off Horton. The two took the score past 250 before Woolley was caught on the boundary off Horton for 23. The end came quickly as Horton spun his way through the final three wickets, with the English losing four for seven to end their innings on 265. Horton and Cotter both claimed four wickets apiece. The day ended with the fall of the final wicket, with the English disappointed only taking an 81-run lead into the third day after their position at tea. The start of day three was delayed for 10 minutes due to a shower. When play commenced, Callaway and Bardsley opened up, facing Foster and first innings destroyer Barnes. They avoided collapse that they had suffered at the beginning of the first innings, with Bardsley striking Barnes to the square league boundary. The score raced to 25 after as many minutes of batting before Bardsley gave two chances, a catch in the slips and a stumping, without either being completed. However, three runs later, Callaway became the first to fall, caught in the slips off Foster. Hill came in and struggled to get off the mark. The two batsmen attempted a quick run, but Bardsley was just caught short by a direct hit from Hobbs. Without a run being added, Hill was out in the next over for a duck, caught in the slips, giving Barnes his first wicket of the innings. The trans were now 3 for 34, still trailing by 47 runs. Four runs later, it was four down, as Trumbull could only manage two before Barnes bowled him off his pad. Armstrong and Ransford managed to stem the flow until lunch, getting their total up to 54 when the break was taken. The score moved in singles after lunch for an extended period of time before Barnes unsuccessfully appealed for LBW against Armstrong. This brought the big man to life, immediately hitting two boundaries in the same over. Ransford also found the boundary for the first time, hitting Foster behind point. The deficit was wiped and the batting continued vigorously. Woolley was brought on, but his slow left armers were hit to the boundary four times in his first three overs by Armstrong. Soon afterwards, the hundred was raised whilst Armstrong brought up his half-century. Ransford was more circumspect, but the partnership was approaching 100 before it was broken, with Ransford edging Foster to the keeper, out for 32. Horan replaced him at 5 for 135, and watched as Armstrong put on another 11 runs before T, taking his total to 72 at the break. Leading by only 63 runs with 5 wickets in hand, the Australians still had a lot of work to do to set up a competitive chase. After resuming, a cover drive boundary followed by an edge through slip soft Barnes took Armstrong into the 80s. Another two boundaries in and over took him to 90, but he was denied a century when Foster managed to York him without addition. He batted for two and a half hours and hit 14 boundaries. Minute joined Horden. Both batsmen were finding the bowling uncomfortable, and some missed chances almost separated them, but as they took the total past 200, they started to gain confidence. Minute smashed Douglas to the boundary twice in and over, and looked set to repeat his efforts from the Sydney test. However, once he reached 34, he played forward to Foster and was clean bowled, having shared a 64-run stand with Horden. Horton followed three runs late for 32, caught at Minot off Foster, who claimed his fifth wicket of the innings. This left the Australians at eight for 235. Cotter and Carter then combined to see out the rest of the day. Rather than safely playing out the final over, Cotter decided to hit out, launching Barnes out of the ground for six, whilst also hitting another boundary. The Australians ended the day with a score of 269, giving them a lead of 188 with two wickets in hand. Perfect conditions awaited for the fourth day. Cotter in particular hit out, finding multiple boundaries and taking 13 off a Barnes over. He raced into the 40s before he skied a ball to mid-off from Foster, where Hobbs took a well-judged catch looking into the sun. One run later, Barnes bowled Carter to end the Australian innings on 299. Foster was the pick of the bowlers, claiming 6 for 91, whilst Barnes added 3 to his first innings haul to give him 8 for the match. The majority of the spectators expected the English to be able to reach the target of 219, although the threat of Horden was potentially the biggest stumbling block. Hobbs and Rhodes opened, facing up to Cotter and Witty. Through little fuss, they raced 20 runs in as many minutes as Horden was brought on to bowl.
The spectators hoped for a breakthrough, but the batsman played him well, seemingly picking his variations with ease. The two batsmen were able to make it to the lunch break without loss, taking the total of 52. Upon the resumption, the total was raised to 57 before the Australians finally got a wicket, with Cotter having Rhodes caught behind for 28. Gunn replaced him and started cautiously. In his first 40 minutes of the crease, he would only score six singles. Hobbs did most of the run scoring, cutting Whitty for four and taking nine off Armstrong. He moved to a half century, whilst the team hundred was raised soon after. Gunn would finally play an attacking stroke, hitting Minna to the boundary. Hill rotated through all his bowling options, including returning to Horton, but neither batsmen were troubled. They were able to go to tea with a score on 138, with Hobbs on 73 and Gunn 31. Requiring only a further 81 runs for victory with nine wickets in hand, an English victory seemed inevitable. The crowd had all but accepted the result already. The only matter up for debate was whether victory would be achieved before stumps. Little worried the English batsman, although Hobbs did play a high ball into the outfield, which just fell out of reach of Branson when he was on 90. Finally, with a total of 169, a second wicket fell, with Witty having gun caught behind for 43. He shared a 112 run stand with Hobbs and seen England to within 50 runs of victory. Hearn replaced him and was there to witness Hobbs break up his century, his second in tests and first against Australia. He was well applauded by the crowd and even Hill gave him a pat on the back. The total moved past 200 before Rance was brought on for the first time. Hobbs took advantage, hitting him twice to the boundary as well as running four byes, bringing up the English victory by eight wickets. Hobbs was left a masterful 126 not out, making just over three hours with eight boundaries. This result meant the series was tied one all, heading into the next test in Adelaide. The ongoing dispute between the players and administrators led to much comment in the newspapers. Most people seemed to be on the side of the players, with many in Melbourne's age newspaper questioning the cricketing knowledge of those in the board, particularly McCalhoun and Bean. Furthermore, the relationship between the selection panel was degrading, with McAllister's continual snide telegrams and remarks on the quality of Hill's captaincy becoming an ulcer that was threatening to derail the Australians' chances in the Test Series. This is the end of Part 1 of our episode covering the 1911-12 tour by England. Part 2, where we will see how the series and the board dispute will play out, will be released next week. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.